We're starting a new sermon series today, but before we do that, I want to just give a recap of everything we talked about for the last two weeks. And what we did is we said, okay, here's our mission as a church. Here's our, God's mission for us, for you specifically, and as a church. What's God's vision for you? What's God's vision for the church? And we've been looking at that, and here's what we said. The ultimate mission for any church is to make disciples. That means to help people come to faith and help people grow in faith. And the vision for any church is for God's glory and kingdom to come. Now, each church will articulate that in a specific way. So here's how we say it. We want to be a place where believers and skeptics have authentic community and honest conversations about faith and doubt. That's going to be the best place, we think, for who we're trying to reach for, to help people come to faith and grow in faith. And as that happens, and more and more people are coming to faith and growing in faith, what's going to happen is this. God's kingdom is going to come. His glory is going to come. And that means our city will be changed as more and more people come to faith and grow in faith. It starts small, and it starts in neighborhoods. And then the next thing you know, 15 years down the road, we see our city being changed because of work that has been being done today consistently seeking to help people come to faith and grow in faith. And our big focus this year is our launching of our gospel communities. And basically, these are small communities of people that are meeting outside of this building to help each other come to faith and grow in faith. Reaching out to others, helping them to come to faith and grow in faith. And as that happens, it's going to help produce a flourishing city where 15 years from now, we look back and we say, man, a lot of that work was getting started right in houses. And so here, here's, what, here's what's happening. We prayed last week for all these communities... And this is a big celebration for us because we started this church as one big gospel community. And then we birthed into what we're doing here Sunday mornings. And now we're relaunching and we're launching five gospel communities. So we started at one. We're launching five now. So I think we're going to look back in two years and we're going to be able to celebrate some amazing stories coming out of the gospel communities that are being launched in February. So... And if you want to be part of one of those groups, you just got to come and talk to me. There's a piece of paper here. You just signed up for it, okay? Or you just want more information. So today, though, today now, we're starting our new series called New Beginnings. And we're going to look at the gospel, or not the gospel, well, the gospel of Genesis. We could say that, the good news of Genesis. Uh, we're going to look at Genesis. Specifically, this series is saying this to you. The book of Genesis is saying this. Leave your old life of sin and death behind. Press forward through the wilderness of this world into the promised land, into paradise. Listen, the series is saying this to you. Genesis is saying this. Leave your old life of sin and death behind. Press forward through the wilderness into paradise. And the book of Genesis is an incredibly important book. Not because one book is more important than another in the Bible, but the genius of Genesis, the beauty of Genesis, is that it is in story form. A child can be drawn into the story. The smartest adult could be captivated by the message that is in the story and get lost in the depth of it. That's how deep Genesis is. So it's incredibly genius in that it's simple yet profound and deep at the same time. All right, so we're going to just go into it. Genesis 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
The earth was without form and void, and darkness hovered over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, you're probably thinking we're going to talk about the creation story, and if you are, you would be wrong. That's next week. There's something we need to do first. We've actually got to start before that. We've got to start with the fact that this right here is claiming to be God's word. We've got to start with the fact that words from God are being spoken to Moses and through Moses to God's people. We've got to ask this question, what is this that we're reading? The very words of God. And here's what's so important to understand. This was placed to God's people when? Where were they? They were wandering in the wilderness. They were headed towards paradise. They were headed towards the promised land, but they weren't there yet. And that's when this comes through Moses to God's people. Now, here's the significance of that for you. The way the New Testament describes life in this world is as walking through the wilderness. In other words, the very thing that the Israelites needed as they were wandering in the wilderness towards the promised land was God's word, for God to speak to them. And this, the very thing that you need right now is this, God's word. The whole reason Genesis was written was to encourage the Israelites to leave their old life of slavery behind, press forward through the wilderness to the place where they were meant to be, the promised land. Same thing for you. The whole purpose of Genesis is to call you to leave your old life of sin and slavery to sin and death behind, press forward through the wilderness into the promised land. The message of Genesis is incredibly, incredibly, incredibly relevant for you. And you have to get into the story to understand what it means for you. So what I want to do right now is I just want to place you into the context. I want you to pretend like you're an Israelite. And here's what what life would be like for you. So you are in Egypt, and you would be a slave to forced labor as an Israelite. See, the Israelites were growing and growing and growing, and, and the king, the pharaoh, got scared of them, and so put them into forced labor. And what happened is, as the years went by, it kept getting worse and worse and worse, until it got so bad that this king, this pharaoh, said, every boy born that's an Israelite, we're going to kill him. And so over time, God raises up this leader named Moses, and God says to Moses, go go and tell the Pharaoh, go to the king, go tell him to let my people go. So Moses goes and does this, Pharaoh says no, and then God lets out these plagues until the Pharaoh finally says, okay, fine, go. And so the Israelites leave, and on their way leaving, they get pretty far out, and then the Pharaoh, the king, changes his mind and he sends, an, sends his army after them. And so they're chasing the Israelites down. Israelites see them coming. They're getting close and then they come up to the sea and then God does something crazy. He parts the sea open. And the Israelites pass through the sea and as they get through, the, the Egyptians are chasing them down and then God closes up the sea on top of them. And the Israelites are now free. But, They're still in the wilderness. Well, now they're in the wilderness, and now the calling is to press forward through the wilderness into the land they've been made for. 
the promised land. And then it's in, so they're in this place where they're not meant to be. They're not home. They have these deep longings. They know life is not meant to be this way. Sounds similar to things we say all of the time. And it's in that moment, in that environment, that God gives them Genesis. That God gives them his word. It's in that place that God speaks to them as homeless wanderers. God's given that same gift to us. The Bible is our lifeline in the wilderness. It's our lifeline as we are walking through this world. It's like food for the starving. It's like a painkiller for those who are in pain. And as a, as a pastor, I want to tell you, I get the privilege of walking through life with people who are going through very difficult times. And something that always seems to happen, when life is difficult, you become very aware that you're in the wilderness. You become very aware that life is not meant to be this way. Why is this happening? We start asking these questions. And but something happens when people go through difficulties. This begins to come alive in ways that it didn't before. Because we become very aware that we're in the wilderness when we go through difficulties. And when that happens, we start clinging to this like we hadn't before. And it comes alive in ways it had not before. Gospel community leaders, you're going to get to walk through people through difficulties, and you're going to have the privilege of pointing them to this, their lifeline in those difficult times. And they're going to come out like gold because they've clung to this. So let's just look at Jesus for a minute. So Jesus, before he begins his ministry, what does he do? He goes into the wilderness for 40 days. The wilderness. He's being tempted by Satan, and he's in the wilderness. He has no food. He's, he's going on a fast, 40 days, just similar to the Israelites. And he's being tempted. How does he answer the temptation? With this. Jesus, who we would say today would be the Son of God, infinite in wisdom, he does not, he's in the wilderness, he's being tempted, and he does not rely on his own wisdom, he relies on the wisdom of the Bible, the wisdom of Scripture. Now, even, even if you're skeptical of Christianity, everybody seems to want to say, well, Jesus is an amazing guy, so we ought to live the way he lives. Well, look at what he does when he's in the wilderness. He reads this. He submits to the wisdom of this. Jesus, if he is sinless, he relies on this. How much more should we be relying on it? But the amount of dust that collects on our Bibles tells us something about the way we see this. When you're walking through life and you're saying, this is not the way it's supposed to be, Bible. When you're going through pain and suffering, what do you need? The Bible. When you're angry, you need the Bible. When you're sad, you need the Bible. When you're anxious, the Bible. When you're mad at God, you need the Bible. When you wake up, Bible. When you sleep, before you go to sleep, the Bible. When you keep sinning and you feel guilty and you don't know what to do about this guilt, the Bible has an answer, forgiveness. And then the Bible seeks to teach you now how you ought to live in light of this forgiveness. When you feel alone, 
The Bible is very God, God's very words to you. Words of healing spoken in painful areas of your life. In the Bible, you find words of correction, words of forgiveness, words of rescue, words of wisdom, words of grace, words of disciplines, words of glory, of God's glory, words of his love, words of God's sovereignty, words of God's power, words of his comfort, words that teach you how to suffer, words that teach you how to forgive, words that even teach you about the birds and the bees. This is what the Bible does. There are very practical words, very beautiful words, very historical words. These are the very words of God, the words of life, the words of truth. God has spoken to you. And Words are incredibly powerful. Hitler divided the world with his words. He's a very eloquent person. A wordsmith of destruction. The Bible are the words of life. Do you know why we don't actually read the Bible enough? Because we don't really believe what I said is true. We don't really think it is true. We don't really think this is God's word to us. We question its reliability. We say, is this true? And so it collects dust and it goes unread while we are dying inside. This is our second point now that we're coming to is that the word is truth. You want to, want to know one of the main reasons that today why people reject Christianity is because of the Bible, meaning they don't believe it's actually the Bible. They don't think they can trust it. They don't think it's fully true. And I mean, it makes, it's a good question. How can we actually believe that this is God's word? I mean, we're looking at Genesis. Moses wrote Genesis. So if Moses wrote Genesis, why should we trust that this is the very words of God? So let me explain how scripture explains itself. God speaks in Scripture through whoever the author is, his very words, spoken in such a way that it is authentic to God and authentic to the writer. Here's what I mean. Let's say instead of Moses writing the book of Genesis, you wrote it. Somehow you time traveled or whatever. I don't know. Just to pretend you wrote it. And here's the question. Would you write the exact same words as Moses? The answer is no. But you would write the exact same truth that Moses wrote. Here's what that means. Here's what I mean by that. Moses grew up in a very specific culture. He was educated in a very specific way. He had his specific gifts that he had. And God took all of those things and spoke truth to Moses and then outpoured the truth of God through Moses that is authentic to who Moses is. If you had wrote Genesis, you would have probably written it in English. And you would have written it based off of your education, based off of your skill set in writing, but it would be the same 100% exact truth of God spoken through you down on paper. That's called inspiration. That's what this is known as. God's word spoken through a person in such a way that is both authentic to God and authentic to that person. It really is a work of art how God speaks through his people to his people. So maybe now, okay, so let's keep digging into this. So maybe you're struggling and you say, okay, but 
we don't actually have the originals, right? And so we have copies. So if we have the copies of the originals, then how do we actually know that this is without error? How can we know that we can actually trust the Bible? And here's what I would say. We have something stronger than the original. We have many, many copies of the original. Now, why would I say that's stronger? Well, just think about what we would do if we only had one, or if we had the original copy, just one copy. Here's what we would do. We would say, how do we know we can trust that? How do we know that someone didn't get a hold of this and change it? How do we know that this wasn't, this wasn't changed for some political reason? How do we know that this wasn't changed for some ulterior motive? But what we have is many, many copies, meaning this is what was said. This, is, this can be more reliable because we have many, many copies of what the original had said. Then you say, okay, fine, okay, that's convincing, um, but it's not 100% true, right? I mean, there's some errors in there, right? Well, no. It's 100% inerrant. Think about it like this. When I say I am 36 years old, that is 100% true. It's also 100% a lie. Because I'm actually 36 years old, plus 12 days, plus a certain amount of hours, plus a certain amount of minutes and seconds. The Bible is speaking truth in such a way. It is not as concerned about the scientific and the mathematical parts and a lot of what it says, but it is 100% true. It's speaking to you in such a way that doesn't bore you. So when you ask me how old are you, you don't want to hear all the specifics of that, you just want to hear my age. And that's what the Bible is giving us, 100% truth. You say, okay, David, prove to me. Prove to me beyond a reasonable doubt that the Bible is 100% true. I will. Are you ready? Here's how I can show you that. The Bible is 100% true because the Bible says it's 100% true. The Bible is 100% true because the Bible says it was 100% true. You say, oh, that's circular. You can't do that. That is not fair. But listen, listen to, listen. If you are thinking that, listen to this. If the Bible is the ultimate authority, and then you say, prove to me that the Bible is the ultimate authority. If I use something other than the Bible, then what I'm saying is I've found something that has more authority than the Bible, and so I'm going to use that thing to prove that the Bible is the ultimate authority. That doesn't make any sense. Now, what you can do is you can use secondary proofs, and we do that all the time. Secondary proofs that prove, so for example, you say, prove to me that Jesus rose from the dead. And I say, well, the ultimate proof is that the Bible says he rose from the dead, but you can use secondary proofs, and secondary proofs go like this. There are eyewitnesses who saw him risen from the dead. There are his disciples, and 10 of them died saying he rose from the dead, and nobody dies for a lie. You say, well, people in cults die for a lie. Well, no, people in cults die for something that they hope in. The disciples said they actually saw Jesus walking and risen from the dead. Nobody dies for a lie. Nobody dies with a knife to their throat for a lie. That's a secondary proof. But ultimately, the ultimate proof has to be the Bible if it is the ultimate authority on what is true. Second Thess- or 1 Thessalonians 2.13 
And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. So here's my question for you. If the Bible is not your ultimate authority, what is? If the Bible is not your ultimate authority, what is? Because you will arrive at something. So what is it? A lot of people will say facts. Facts are my ultimate authority. And to that we have to say, oh, please. I could turn on two different news stations that would be claiming facts all the while they are saying two completely different things. Now, why is that happening? Because they have each, each, all of us, are arguing everything from some ultimate truth that we believe, from some ultimate belief. And what we do is we see everything through that lens. Every fact that we see, we see it through the filter of our ultimate belief. So every fact, facts always filter through your ultimate belief. And you know what that means? I hope you're following me here. You know what that means? It means you cannot trust yourself. It means you can't actually trust yourself to interpret the facts correctly unless you have found the ultimate authority. Your facts that you have are always seen through a lens of something that you believe to be the ultimate truth. You can't escape it. And so that means ultimately you can't trust yourself really. And if you can trust yourself, then would, if you can trust yourself, wouldn't that mean everybody else should be able to trust themselves? But the problem with that is everybody's forming all these different beliefs. So why are you right, but everybody else is wrong? Isn't that prideful? What we ultimately need is for God to just come and tell us the truth. What we ultimately need is for God to say, I'm going to help you out here. This is truth right here. My word speaking truth. Let me just make this, because we're kind of up here, we're kind of like, let me just bring it down a little bit. So let's say uh, there's a book, a storybook. It's an awesome book, and the writer, Bob, his name is Bob. Bob is, the, Bob is a novel writer, and that's a good name for a novel writer, Bob. So we got Bob, and Bob writes this great book. Um, Thank you, Bob, for this great book. And so all these people love this book. And so they get into this room and they want to talk about this book that Bob wrote. And so they're looking at the book and they're saying, I think Bob meant this in this part of the story. Another person says, no, 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 no way. He meant this. Another person says, no, I don't think so. I think he meant this. And then all of a sudden, the doors burst open and in comes Bob. And Bob says, actually, I meant this. And there is a hush and then everybody says, okay. That's what Bob meant. You have a story. The world has a story. How the world came to be has a story. You're wandering in the wilderness. There's a story to that. There's a promised land. There's a story to that. And we can debate all that we want, the meaning of life. We can debate all we want about God. We can debate all we want about who's right or who's wrong. But as soon as God bursts open into the room and speaks, there must be a hush. And whatever he says, we say, okay. That's what the Bible is. God breaking in to tell us 
who he is, who we are, what our great problem is in life and how God is coming to rescue us. If I asked you, how do you find truth? Like, how do you find truth? What would you tell me? If you say, okay, so you went through all that, I'll say, you say, okay, maybe we can't find truth. I had a friend who used to say, there's no such thing as an absolute truth. And one day I said to him, are you absolutely sure there's no such thing as an absolute truth? And he said, I am absolutely sure there's no such thing as an absolute truth. And I said, you just told me that you're absolutely sure there's no such thing as an absolute truth. You just made an absolute truth claim that there is no absolute truth. And he said, oh. And then he just kind of, I mean, what do you say to that? There is truth. The question is, how do we find it? If you say you have to search for it and find it, how can you trust yourself? Because in 10 years from now, you're probably going to believe something very different than you do now. Plus, if you do find it, well, how, what about all these other people with all these other different opinions? Why are you more right than they are? Wouldn't it be prideful for us to think that way? Don't you see? We're lost without God. He has to get involved and speak truth to us. So then we say, well, how, how do I find God? Do I, I mean, do you intellectually ascend to God? Well, here's the problem with that. There are incredibly smart philosophers for centuries who've been trying to figure God out, and none of them can seem to agree about God. And if these are the intellectual elite, what does that mean for us? I'm not saying that you're dumb. I'm just saying there are people who are very smart that can't seem to figure God out. Okay, well, maybe we morally ascend to God. I don't know about you, but I pretty much feel like a sinner every day. So finding God through my morality seems impossible. If you say religion, well, here's the problem with religion. There's all these religions that keep saying all these different things, and they're saying radically different things. So they can't all be right. The only logical conclusion here is that we will never find God and never find truth until he comes and brings it to us. Don't trust yourself. Don't trust me. Trust the Bible. And you have to understand that if you aren't going to trust the Bible, then you have another Bible. You have some other ultimate authority. The question is, what is it? And what is it telling you? And what is it doing to you as you believe whatever it is telling you? Who is writing that Bible? So what, what becomes your ultimate authority? So whatever it is becomes your ultimate authority. It's telling you how to live. It's telling you what to believe about yourself. And if you don't know what your ultimate authority is, then likely it's you, but we know that doesn't work. We just saw that. If the Bible is truth, you must submit to it. You must bend your life to the Bible and stop bending the Bible to fit your life. And that's what we all seem to be doing. We don't like parts of the Bible, and so we want to bend them and move them and push them out because we don't know what to do with them or because we don't like what it tells us to do. But what we must be doing is let the Bible bend us. If you pick and choose what you like about the Bible, then you know what you've done? You've said, here's where the Bible is as authority, and here's where I am as authority. And you're placing yourself above the Bible as a greater authority. 
you're wandering in the wilderness and you're looking for the truth that will bring you to home. You're looking for the truth that will set you free from the wilderness that you're in. You're looking for the truth that will set you free from sin and death. And the truth is Christ and his word come to us. And let me tell you something about God's word. It will not fail. We see in the end that God's word gets God's people through the wilderness into the promised land. And look at how the world was created. Did you see how the world is created? It is created by God speaking, and then light comes by God's spoken word, meaning God speaks and things come into existence. There is power in his word. It's powerful and it accomplishes what it sets out to do. Isaiah 55, 11, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word is alive and it is active and it moves whatever stands in its way so it might accomplish what it's meant to do and it transforms whatever will submit itself to the word. The message today is that God's word will not fail in rescuing you from your slavery of sin and death and bringing you through the wilderness, through the strange wilderness of this world, into home where you're meant to be with God forever. God's word will not fail you, but you must give yourself over to it as what it is, God's word. You know, preachers preach and they use words to preach. And this is, this is what preaching is. And do you know who the most important preacher is in your life? I know you want to say that it's me, but it's not. It's you. You are preaching to yourself every single day, hours upon hours, every single day, and you are telling yourself something. The question is, are you telling yourself the truth? Are you bringing the words of Scripture to bear in your life? Are you preaching the words of God that have already been preached to you in His Word? Here's the problem. If it's not God's Word, then you are preaching to yourself untruths. You're preaching to yourself lies. And those untruths are ruling you and they are destroying you. If you, let God's rule, if you let God's word rule you, it will give you life. And if you don't, whatever else, it destroys you because it's not truth. You know that every time you sin, do you know what's happening? God's word has spoken truth and how, how life is meant to be. And when you sin, you're violating the truth of how you should be living. And so by that happening, it creates unlife. You will become uncreated. You become destroyed in a way. You're breaking down. You're becoming more chaotic. You're becoming more of a void. You're becoming more and more dead. God's word brings life. When you let it bend you. But if you don't, you begin, well, you begin to be bent in a different way. And you begin to be deteriorated because you're becoming less and less and less alive. It uncreates you. What you need is for God's word to give you a new beginning.
a new creation and a whole new world. That's what Genesis is about, pointing you forward through the promised land, to the promised land. That's what happened with the Israelites. God's word brought them to the promised land, but guess what? That promised land that they walked into, it was only a shadow of the real thing. Watch this. See, while the Israelites had Moses speak God's word to them, you today have something far greater than Moses. You have the word become flesh. Did you hear that? The word has become flesh. John 1.14. The word become flesh and dwelt among you. Watch this. Jesus comes into the world as a person. The word become flesh. God speaks. God spoke through Moses as a person. And what did he call Moses to go speak to his people? He called them to speak to them while they were in their slavery, to free them from slavery, to bring them into the wilderness, out through the promised land. And then guess what happens? Well, the Egyptians start chasing them down. Death is chasing them down. Now watch what happens. Jesus, the word made flesh, enters into humanity. And on the cross, he dies. Now, what is he doing? Well, watch. The Israelites pass through the sea. God holds the sea off of them. Now, what does water represent in the Old Testament? It represents death. So Jesus on the cross enters into death, and he holds death off of you so that when you pass through death, its grip never touches you and you simply pass right through it into life. That has already happened for you in Christ and now you're walking through the wilderness towards the promised land. Death has no hold on you anymore. You're free from it and you're free from the power sin has over you. Now you're simply walking in the wilderness with this towards home clinging to this all the way through as your lifeline read this if there's anything you hear today just read this read it more and bend yourself to it don't bend this let it bend you God, we pray now that we would do just that, that we would put ourselves under your word and let it speak truth to us and that we would let your truth bend us. And God, right now we ask that your truth would bend our hearts towards you so that we might see you as the God who speaks and who has not left us on our own, but the God who has come for us and who has died and risen so that we might be with you again. God, we need you to help us understand your word when we read it. And so we ask now, God, that you would. And God, I pray that you would create us, that you would mold us into a church that reads your word. A church that lets your word bend us and rule us and transform us and change us and rescue us. God, we can't find you, but you've given us your word. 
and in it is everything that we need to get to you. And so God, help us submit to it. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.